Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. I didn't get a chance to greet you, so this is my opportunity. Hey, welcome here. My name is Pastor Jeremy. If you uh, weren't with us a few moments ago, we're delighted you're here to worship with us. As you can see, I'm wearing a baseball jersey this morning, and if you're visiting, this isn't my normal attire, although I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I may change, who knows? But it is a jersey of a player some of you might recognize whose name is Verlander, exactly right. I heard some boos and some yays. Listen, if nothing else, someone told me this morning, they said, well, better a former player than any of the current ones. That's what I said, too. Wow. Sting. But the thing is, is I think there's some truth in that, particularly in the sense that we all want to be on a winning team. Whether it's baseball or in our family or our organization or whatever club or organization or community that we're a part of, we want to win. And for baseball, it's really simple. Like at the end of the day, the team with more runs wins. We get it. And it's pretty easy to measure their success. We just look at their win-loss record and percentages and stuff like that. We could say this is a winning team or this is a losing team. But for us as Christians, how does it work? What's a win? What's a loss? How do we measure And even more so for us as a church, is it the number of people in the pews? Is it the number of missionaries? Is it the size of our budget? What is it that makes us a success as an organization? Today in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to try to answer those two questions the Apostle Paul actually already has. And here are the questions we're going to get at. They are these. Number one, it is what's our win? Like what's a win? For us as a church. And number two. How do we get there? I mean if. If we know what the win is. Then we all want that. I'm assuming. How do we get there? So the first thing we'll ask is. What's our win? And the second thing is. How do we get there? It's Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 7 through 16. I'm going to read these verses to you. They're going to be up on the slides. You can follow along in your Bible. You can read the slides. You can borrow one of our Bibles. If you're new and you don't have a Bible, we'd invite you to keep one of our blue ones in back. Our gift. Welcome here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 16, it says this. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Do you remember that reading from earlier today? In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain what? Three things. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, mature man or personhood, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it, here's the point, so that, here's why we do this, so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, initially, if you're reading this passage like I was, you probably latch on most to the second part of the passage. You're like, there's a body analogy. You understand how the body works. You know, the head does one thing, the arms, the feet, the legs, heart, the lungs. Everything sort of has its function. Get that. But at the front end, there's this thing about ascending and descending and captives and giving gifts. And I'm sort of scratching my head saying, what in the world is all of that about? This is an extremely specific cultural reference to Old Testament warfare. Now, I say Old Testament because we in North America have this particular version of of warfare where we see the, you know, the little crosshairs on something and it blows up. Or we imagine our Navy SEALs dropping out of the sky, coming into the room, grabbing the prisoners, and sneaking away under the cover of darkness. That's what we assume. But in the ancient world, and in still many parts of the world today, what happens is warfare looks very different. It's mass-on-mass fighting, and and the leader or the king comes out, and what he, he or she does, mostly he's, is they're seated enthroned in their capital city safe behind their walls they're exalted they're ruling they're reigning but then someone challenges their rule and they hear about that and they anticipate this invading force whether they've got spies or out you know people posted on the fringes of their empire and they hear this person is coming and so what they will do is they will get off their throne they will descend they will muster their troops or rally their allies, and then they will leave the fortification of their capital and go out into the plains, into the valleys, and fight. And then to the victor goes the spoils. Exactly right. To the victor goes the spoils. And so what happens is there's two armies fighting in the field. Boom, boom, boom. Everybody does their thing. One group wins. The other group loses. Now, when that happens, it's not like, okay, game over. We're done. We go back home. Whoever wins gets the spoils of the other team. So what they do is, for example, let's say the guy who descended versus the invaders won. He would say, okay, I don't just stop here and go back, but instead I get to go to that city from which the attacking army came. And now all of his goods, all of his weapons, all of his resources, all of his wives and all of his children become ours. And we get uh, forced labor, we get the benefit of their property, we get their crops, we get everything they have, it's now ours. And similarly, if the invaders would have won, the same thing would have happened. So, when the king comes back into the city, if you see him coming back alive, that's a good thing. All right, the king is coming back, at least we're not dead. Wow, he's bringing all these troops. Wait, he's got extra people. Wait, look at all this stuff he's carrying. He must have won. And you know what happens then? If he wins, you win. 
No longer are you paying taxes, but instead he is dividing the spoil. He's sort of paying tribute to his loyal subjects. And so when the king comes back, having won the victory, it's time to cash in. And you all come around and you say, oh, yeah, this is great. This is awesome. The king says, thanks for being a loyal subject. Thanks for being a loyal subject. Thanks for being a loyal subject. Here's your gift. Here's your gift. Here's your gift. And everybody's happy because the king won. What happened, just to be clear, is that the king descended. He conquered. He gained territory, gifts, whatever. And he came back and he redistributed them. That's exactly what King Jesus does When he becomes a baby, lives a perfect life, dies on a cross, and goes back up to heaven. He descended. He conquered his enemies, sin and death. He took away the keys. And then he gave the spiritual gifts to all of us, the Holy Spirit, and whatever thing you have that you can do. And then after that, he ascended and goes back to his capital city and rules forever and ever. That's what's happening here in Ephesians chapter 4 when he's quoting this Old Testament text. He's the psalmist, probably David, is thinking about his experiences. He's trusted in God. And some Amalekites came and stole his wives. And he's like, oh no, and all his men are rebelling. He says, no, no, hang on guys, let's go get them. And then they go beat the enemy, they capture the wives, they go back to the city, they distribute the gifts. In that historical incident, the psalmist celebrates God, but the the uh, apostle sees it as a prophecy of what the Christ would do. And so he reiterates that here and says, look, this is what Jesus did. And Jesus affirms that because when Jesus comes and they accuse him of casting out um, demons by the power of Beelzebub, Jesus answers his accusers and says, look, Satan can't stand, but he's coming to an end. Why? Because no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods Unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he can plunder the house. So Jesus is identifying with this too. He says here I'm here to invade. What did you expect? I'm taking over. I'm kicking out the bad guy and stealing his stuff. And so in the New Testament the Apostle Paul says look. This is what King Jesus did. You think of him as king. Think of him as king. As deliverer. As conqueror. And so he came. That's the first thing. Like the king could have stayed there in his royal habitation and enjoyed his good food while all of his lands got conquered and not worried about the people. But he came back. Think of all those movies where someone goes and rescues someone where they could have been safe, but instead they risked their life to return. Jesus not only risked his life, he gave his life in returning. The king comes back. He comes back. He came back. He loves me. He cares. He wouldn't have, cared. He wouldn't have come back if he didn't care. Jesus came back. Then he conquered and cap and rescued us from our captor. He went, he established his throne, he distributed gifts, tools, resources, spiritual gifts to us. And once a king gives out those gifts, he doesn't want you to take those things and bury them in your backyard, but his expectation is that you build up his kingdom. The king gives you a hammer and he says, use the hammer, build something. King gives you a screwdriver, he says, use a screwdriver, tighten something. He says, do this with the gifts. I've given you. But King Jesus does something that's way cooler than any other king. And that is two things, actually. One is he reigns forever and ever. And two is he guarantees our success. Look at history in any kingdom in the world. And what you see is rise and fall, rise and fall. No matter how big, no matter how great, no matter how awesome they are. 
Inevitably, the same thing. Rise and fall, rise and fall. And what happens then when the king who is so great and so awesome starts to fall? Inevitably, there's civil war and fighting. Another country comes in and the next kingdom is in power. But Jesus makes the promise to David that on this throne, he shall reign forever and ever. You will always have a descendant on this throne. Jesus is the eternal king who never gets conquered. And not only that, he guarantees a victory, which is a really big deal for us who are on the team. That means we don't live in fear, we don't worry, and we can go out and fight knowing that our king has already won, and therefore our efforts will be a success even if we seem to lose or die. There's this strange upside-down thinking in the kingdom of Jesus mentality that the first shall be last, the last shall be first, that you gain your life by losing it, and you get by giving. It doesn't make sense. And yet, that's what we see, is he who was on high actually descended, and by descending, he conquers. And therefore, he is raised up. So too with us. When we descend, when we serve others, we conquer and we'll be raised up. So Jesus came back, he conquered, he established, he distributed gifts. He, used, he wants us to use those gifts and he guarantees a happily ever after. That's the whole king thing going on in the first half of this chapter. But let me go back to our baseball analogy. Before we show the slide, let me just quiz our audience. I want to see if you were to break down the basic parts of a baseball team. I mean, just really basic. For anyone who's not super familiar with baseball, and you say there's basically, I don't know, four parts of a baseball team or a franchise. What would those parts be? Can anyone take a guess? Just fire away. Got one? An owner. Exactly right. A team has an owner. You start with that. Who's just under the owner in baseball? The general manager, right? This is where I get confused too because I'm not super familiar with baseball. There's a general manager and then there's a manager. In baseball, the general manager and manager are different. The manager is kind of like you'd call a head coach in other sports. But in baseball, you have all these other coaches too. And then finally, there's so there's the... Go ahead and show the slide now. We can show them because we're giving it all away. There's the owner, the general manager, the manager and the coaches, and then finally the players the players so in our analogy what i just explained to you with regard to the church who do you think the owner is who yeah god or jesus he paid for it right how did he pay for it by dying on the cross with his very own blood he didn't use money he used something much more valuable he used the infinite worth of his own blood jesus bought he owns now obviously in sports there's various levels of ownership there's the guy who doesn't care and just sits up in the bleachers and enjoys his good food and then there's the former player who really is involved in the operations and management of the team i would say jesus is much more like the latter like he really cares obviously he died for his team so there's the owner who is the general manager when you talk about the church who's the general manager it was in this passage by the way who would you say are the general managers very good, but the Spirit actually put specific people in place at the foundation of the church to be the GMs. Do you know who they are? Yes, the apostles and the prophets. And the reason I say that is this, is because in a baseball franchise, the 
general manager is really the most important person. You often think about the players or you think about the coaches or whatever, but the GM is this person in a suit behind the scenes running the numbers who's actually determining the outcome. And the way he's doing that is because he decides on how much each player gets paid and which players get on the team. So really, that GM is calling the shots. They're, he's building the team for the organization. Then the coaches and managers and players, they just deal with, they just play with a the hand they've been dealt. But the GM, what, his, what he says goes, like his word is law. Therefore, so too with the apostles and prophets. This is the foundation that the Holy Spirit built the church on. He said, I'm giving you these apostles and prophets to speak my strategy into stone. He gives us the word of God because this is the unchanging law or foundation of our organization. This is the rule, not the, the playbook that we live by. It's the Holy Scriptures. So they said, this is the way it is, and this is the way it's going to go, and this is the way you roll. All right. So Holy Spirit, through the apostles and the prophets, is a general manager. Now, who is then the manager and the coaches of a church? Pastors and teachers and in our church, it's the elders, and I would say some of the support staff as well. So in other words, here's the thing. Oftentimes, I think churches make the mistake of thinking that the managers and the coaches are actually not the managers, but the general managers. They think that the pastors or the priests or the leaders or the bishops or whatever are like their word is law. But the reality is they are not the Holy Spirit. They're just the coaches. And in baseball, do you know what a coach looks like? He's, he's standing right next to the third base and he's either going like this. Or like this. He's either saying, go, 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 go. Or stop, don't do that. Wait, right there. Guess what the pastors do? We either say, go, 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 go. Or stop, don't do that. What are you doing? Stop. That's it. We're really not that important. And actually, the players are getting paid a whole lot more than the third base coach he may make one important call like his whole year, maybe even his whole season, goes home and talks to his mom and dad about it, and that's it. That's the coach. He's on the sideline cheering everybody on. But the real factor that determines whether they win or lose are the players. They're the people in the game, swinging the bat, pitching the ball, and giving their all. See, the, in the church, I think it's the same way. The owner is Jesus. There's no question. He bought it. He paid for it. It's his. It's all about him. When he comes into the locker room, everybody parts a path and goes, owner, stop whatever you're saying, pay attention, there's the owner. Then there's a GM, you don't really know this person, he's somewhere else, that's like the apostles and prophets, but what they say, go. There's the managers, the coaches, pastors and the elders and the staff, and they're cheering you on. Then there's the players, that's the rest of us. Look, that's really important because you know what? Sometimes people who are in the church, don't necessarily think of themselves as players. If we, for example, want to appreciate you, we might send out a letter to thank our, what are, you, what, what are they sometimes called? Volunteers, exactly right. But that's the wrong word for church people. 
We should actually be called players, not volunteers. We think we're volunteers because we're not on the bankroll of Midland Free. But the reality is, even though Midland Free isn't paying us, Jesus already paid for us. He owns us. We are on his team. And volunteering isn't really an option. We need to get in the game because we're part of the team. We're not volunteers. We are players. Paul uses the term a slave. Now, your church leadership would never say, hey, slaves, get to work. But I want you to understand the difference because we think of volunteers and we think, well, I can show up on Sunday or not, or I can check in or not, or I can adjust this or adjust that. And, you know, no big deal because I'm just a volunteer. But the reality is that is not the mindset of a player. A player is like thick or thin, I'm in. Rain or shine, I'm there. Every single day I get in the game and I give my all because I'm part of the team. That's a church. Church is not made up of volunteers. A church is a team made up of players. There's an owner, general manager, apostle, prophets, pastors, teachers. Here's a slide of that. I'll show you so you can download this later and you can see the verses that I'm pulling it from. But I just want you to understand at a macro level, the big idea behind our church is this. Jesus is the owner. He owns it. It's his. He bought it. He paid for it. He gets the glory. The general manager are the apostles and the prophets. And then the coaches and the manager, that's the pastors and teachers and the players. Well, that's all of us. So there's your church. What This is our organization. And the question then becomes, well, what's our win? A baseball team? That's easy. But a church? What is it? Well, our win is this. Our win is basically building up the team. Like we've got to build up our organization in order to win. What do I mean by that? Well, every single gift that Jesus gave when he conquered is for that purpose. Oftentimes I hear people say something like this. They'll say, oh, that church, they just became inward focused and then they died. If they would be more outward focused, boy, that, then they'd be on fire. You know what that is? That's a false dichotomy. Or in computer terms, that's binary thinking. That's reducing a big picture down into two extremes such that you don't have any choice but to choose one because the other's so bad. But the reality is, it's neither or, it's both and. What this passage actually teaches us to do is not be outward focused or not be inward focused, but instead to be others focused. The church is to be others focused. Now those others can be in the organization or they can be outside the organization. But whatever it is, it's someone other than yourself. So for example, you come on Sunday morning. The question is not, wow, am I getting something out of this? But instead, how is this building up my neighbor? Or how is this building up my neighbor? And there's various ways you might do that. You might, for example, meet with another church member and seek to build into them. Another way is you might meet with your neighbor and say, hey, would you like to come to church this morning? Because I think there's something that will build you up. And so either way, whether you are focusing on someone outside the organization or someone inside the organization, you are focusing on someone else. That's called being others focused. And that is what the church is all about. It's not outward. It's not inward. It's other. It's both and someone other than myself. So how does this work in baseball? Well, very similarly, for example, 
a team wants to win, they're going to do a lot of different things like practice and like, you know, listen to their coaches and get a good night's sleep and eat a healthy diet and da 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 But another thing they're going to do is they're going to own a whole bunch of minor league teams. What is one minor league team that the Dodgers own? The Loons. Anybody name another team that the Dodgers own? Do you know how many minor league teams the Dodgers own? Take a guess. It's not a big deal. (laughs) Keep going. Eight. Who said that? You got it. Good job. You're a numbers person, aren't you? Numbers. Exactly right. Eight. Eight teams. Are you ready? Here we go. Oklahoma City Dodgers, AAA. Tulsa Drillers, AA. Rancho Cucamonga Quakes. Rancho Cucamonga, Quakes, Advanced A, Great Lakes Loons, A, Ogden Rappers, A, Raptors, not Rappers, Raptors, AZL Dodgers, the DSL Dodgers 1, and the DSL Dodgers 2 in the Rookie League. They own eight different teams. And the reason for this is because they got to have a stream of people coming into their organization in order to build it up. They may have a hole. Someone like this might get traded, and all of a sudden they're like, wait, we need a pitcher. Let's see if we can find one. And they search, and they work, and they try, and they got a bunch of different options to pursue. Hey, guess what, church? Sometimes we might have a hole in our organization, and it may not be from within that we're going to fill it. And so we got to look outside of ourselves. This is when we're others-focused and say, hey, you know what? They're not a Christian yet, but they will be. Because we got a hole that needs filled, and I can see God at work in their life, and perhaps he's calling them to step into this, and eventually, through the efforts of evangelism, we're going to build up our team. Even evangelism, get this, even evangelism is for building up the church. You can't be more others-focused than evangelism. And in this passage, look at it, Ephesians 4.11. He gave, this is the gifts he gave, boom, boom, boom. Some to be apostles, some to be prophets, and even the evangelists. And the shepherds to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Even evangelism is for the sake of building up the church. Just like the minor leagues. You got to recruit them. You got to bring them in. You got to develop them. And we call that discipleship. It's kind of a Christian term, but there it is. It's for building up the church. So what's our win? Number one, we build up the team. Now, how do we do that? How do we do, or what does that look like? Let me show you in verse 13. Verse 13, this is our win. When we are winning, this is what it'll look like. This is the win in church Christianity. It says, until we all, we're building up our team until we all attain what? The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature personhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These three things are the measure of the healthy church to the unity of the faith and full knowledge, mature manhood and the measure of the stature of Christ. What does that mean? Well, basically it's unity in Christ likeness, unity in Christ likeness. Now I want to be careful about the word unity because what happens is in our culture, when sometimes people hear the word doctrine or theology and they think that's a bad word, they think it's divisive. As soon as they start talking about their opinions, boy, everybody starts fighting. And that may be true in American politics, but it shouldn't be true in the church. Reality is, 
we unite around something. And if there is no doctrine, there is no unity. And that is why in the very first point, the Apostle Paul says the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In the Greek, they're not separate. They're together. This is one thing. It's like truth and love. Later in the passage, it says, speak truth in love. Why? Because if you're lying, you're not loving. And if you're telling the truth and you're not loving, then you're just being rude. The two have to be wed together. Otherwise, you don't have either. They're inseparable. So too with doctrine and unity. So too with truth and love. You can't jettison the baby with the bathwater. You have to unite around something. Here's the point. This is what it looks like, church. When we're doing well, these are the things we should see. We should be speaking the truth in love, not backing off on the truth and not backing off on love, being united around doctrine. And then we will uh, basically get our win. So how do we get there? Well, I'll give you these four things that go directly from directly from our uh, structure of the team. It's this. Number one, you've got to trust the owner. Number one, you've got to trust the owner. Because the owner like owns the team and it's his deal and his decision and his promise. And if you don't believe that, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going nowhere. First thing you got to do is trust the owner. Secondly, you got to obey the GM. The GM lays out the strategy. So that means you have to obey the scriptures. You have to follow them. Third, you have to follow the direction of the coaches. You go out there and try to play however you want to play. It's not going to work. In order to be one team, you've got to listen to the leadership. And when they say, this is where we're going, you say, okay, how can I contribute? Follow the coaches. Number four, simplest, but yet often the most difficult, is just get in the game. Get in the game and play. Everyone has a role to play. No matter how big or small you are, get in the game. Look, if you're a janitor that's part of the franchise, you clean that toilet to the best of your ability. If you're a trainer, man, you massage. If you're a logistics coordinator, a numbers person, boy, you better help them get organized. If you're a marketing expert, dude, promote the team. If all you can do is yell and scream and jump up and down, do that with all your might. That's going to help. It's the bottom of the ninth inning and everybody's going crazy. The team feels that. It's your part. And finally, you can pray. Someone told me once they think the prayers of the saints are kind of like the cheers of the crowd when the team is at the very end of the day and it's really close and all of a sudden the prayers are going up and it just sort of builds this momentum and excites God's people. Prayers in our church could be very specific and I want to, I want to give you an example so I don't just say pray and you say, ooh, cool. No, pray this. Pray for these four things. Number one, number one, pray for your coaches. Pray for your coaches. You need to pray for your elders, your pastors, and the support staff because they are working very hard to serve you well. And they are often under attack and pressure. And there's limited resources and they're doing their best. But it is what it is. And so we need to pray. We need to pray and support them. Number two, you need to pray for your team's needs. Every team has needs. Yankees win a lot. Why? They have a really high payroll. They get the players, and the GM has a lot to work with. You know what? In our households, when things break, what do we see? 
we see basically two things. Number one, we can fix it ourselves. Or number two, we can pay somebody else to do it. Guess how it works in a church? Really not that complicated. We can either chip in and do it ourselves, like physically, or we can pay someone else. And so when there's an issue that comes up in the church, you're going to have to ask yourself one of those two questions. Am I willing to help or am I willing to pay someone else to do it? And that's how you support the needs of your team. The very real fact that if you want something, you either have to help that team get there by doing it yourself or by chipping in. And that's the way it is with the church, basically volunteering or giving. So number one, pray for your team's coaches. Number two, pray for your team's needs. Number three, pray for your team's mission. And number four, pray for your team's missionaries. So the coaches, the needs, the mission, and the missionaries. Coaches, needs, mission, and missionaries. Pray for those things. Pray very specifically that God will build up his church. Look, we all want to be on a winning team. We all want to be on a winning team. What's our win as a church? Building one another up. Building our franchise to the point of unity and Christ-likeness. Trust the owner. Obey the GM, follow the direction of the scripture or the coaches, and get in the game. Use whatever you have to be on our team. And then church, listen, our team will win. We will. God has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Midland Free is a great place to be. She is a good church that believes the gospel and loves God and serves others. This is where you want to be. Right here. So get in the game. Let's win. God's given us everything we need. Said another way, Aslan is on the move. Something happening. Let's be a part. Here's a funny thing about organizations nowadays. They've kind of got it figured out what Jesus figured out a long time ago. And that's actually the way to win is to lose. Did you know that? It's called tanking in baseball. The Boston Red Sox did it and came up with a World Series. What happens is this. Midway through the season, you realize that you are losing and there's really no hope of the playoffs or a championship. And so they trade away all of their um, sort of middle ground players And then they hope for a good draft pick. And when that draft pick comes, all of a sudden they got a great chance to win a World Series. They lose in order to win. This is the upside-down kingdom mindset that Jesus demonstrates when he comes from heaven to earth. He purposely goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows to give himself for his team so that his team can be built up. And as a result, God raises him up for it. This is what it looks like to be others focused. Philippians chapter 2 verses 4 through 11 says this. This is the church. Let each of you look not only to their own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. 
he tanked. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Church, let's do that. Let's win. What does our win look like? Right there. How do we do it? Be part of the team. Get in the game. Play your heart out. Jesus guarantees we will win. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for Jesus, our perfect shepherd and savior. Thank you that he gave up everything so that we could gain everything. Lord, please forgive us for our sins and um, strengthen us where we're weak. Redirect us when we take wrong turns. And may your abundance fill up our need and our lack. Help us, Lord, where we fall short. Give us grace and strength as you already have. And we pray that others would see the victory in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.